If you open your Bible to where we are, you can see the end of the psalm. We are on lesson 31, I believe, this week. So we've been in this 31 weeks. And hopefully it has been a, a blessing to you. And I know it's taught me a lot. And uh, it's if, if nothing else, and there are other things, it has, it has taught me to, to dig. You know, sometimes when you read the Bible and you... you you know, you see what's on the surface was superficial, and that's fine, but then there's layers. And so you keep digging, and you find layers, and then as you dig and those things stick in your mind, you keep reading, what you find is there's other things that make connections. So the Bible is kind of like a network, and you can see how many things are connected. Some of you have, might have seen that graphic of Old Testament quotations and New Testament prophecies fulfilled, where it, they kind of loop in a kind of a... Um, a rainbow kind of set, set up, and all the cross-references in the Bible, and there's thousands and thousands of them. And uh, so that's the way it is when you read the Bible, and if we read it slowly, read it carefully. All right, we're going to read. Uh, we're going to start in verse number uh, 137, and we will read down through verse number 152. And today, uh, hopefully, we will conclude maybe a little bit early. Uh, there's a couple things I need to do before the service, so, uh, so maybe we'll conclude a little bit early if we can. All right, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your sustaining power in our life, Lord, to make up for our lack and for our um, shortcomings and faults. Lord, thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow and increase in the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God, the grace of God, that, that your grace indeed would overshadow us and uh, that your good favor would rest upon us to lead us in your way, to correct us when we step out of the way. We pray that your grace would sustain us and keep us from falling. I pray for each, each person here, each person in, uh, as a part of our church to be uh, to just follow you faithfully and to be uh, loyal to your, your word, to your person, to your ways. As we look at your word uh, here this morning, please give us understanding. Please guide us, Lord, as we study. And please especially speak to the hearts of your people, including myself, that we might uh, get benefit and uh, profit from your word. And Lord, we also pray for the service to follow and this evening service as well, that you would truly meet with us and help us and give us understanding from your word. And I just pray that you would bless your people today and meet with your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right, let's look at verse number 137. The Bible says, <coughs> Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me, because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do not I forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, 
yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. I cried with my whole heart, Hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. I cried unto thee, Save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried. I hoped in thy word. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness, O Lord. Quicken me according to thy judgment. They draw nigh that follow after mischief. They are far from thy law. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. All right, we have studied, last time we studied, we finished basically on verse number uh, 139, talking about zeal and apathy. Now, who remembers who we, who we saw as an example of zeal? Who was an example of zeal that we looked at? Correct. When did that happen? In the temple. In the temple. And of course, we have to, as I said last week, we have to be careful uh, that we that we don't use those examples as we often do as a pretext to fulfill the lust of the flesh and anger and things like that. But uh, in fact, I know someone, someone in my family who thinks that uh, Jesus' cleansing of the temple was actually a sin, that he committed a sin. Of course, he's, he's, not, he's not correct on the doctrine of Christ. See, you come at that with Christ was sinless because that's a plainly taught doctrine of Scripture. And so you look at that and you're like, well, I don't understand maybe all the ins and outs of why he did that and whatever, but I know he didn't sin because the Bible says he didn't sin. You know, in other words, you don't... But, but the problem is oftentimes, and we'll see a little bit more about this in a minute when we talk about the Word of God, but when you look at what Jesus did, you can't judge it based upon man's, man's judgment. You can't judge it based upon man's judgment. How would you act... If somebody was in your house doing wickedness. <laughs> and that's exactly what was happening. And of course, we know, we know that even God's anger is holy, whereas man's anger is often, probably the vast majority of the time, not. It's often out, of, it comes out of the flesh. So the Lord Himself is an example of zeal. And of course, zeal is, uh, is the opposite of apathy. And uh, just to read this definition, just as a, as a review, apathy is freedom from or insensibility to passion or feeling, a passionless existence. It means indolence or laziness of mind, indifference to what is calculated to move the feelings or to excite, excite interest or action. So basically we saw that there are some things that should excite feeling, both good feeling and bad feeling. Sin should excite bad feeling. As an example of that, again, just reviewing, rivers of water, verse 136. Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. You notice there's feeling there. No apathy. Now the responses may be different than what we saw the Lord happen to the Lord in, in John 2. But the feeling, the passion, the, the stirring of the emotions is present. And... Uh, and so that, that's, uh, and that's a response to sin, those that keep not thy law. Just like in verse 139, we say something has gotten my goat 
It's eating me up. That's, what, that's kind of what's talking about here. My zeal hath consumed me. And then we also looked at one other example of not of zeal, but of the opposite of zeal, of apathy. And where was that? I'll give you a hint. It was in Revelation. Laodicea. Laodicea, the church that was plagued with apathy. Things that should bother them didn't. They were unbothered. And why were they unbothered? Why, why were they apathetic? What was the, the main cause? If you could kind of nail it down to one thing. They were missing the goods in their Yep. It was abundance. It was abundance that had lulled them to sleep. And then we talked about how that our abundance is often, uh, you know, when we think especially of media, TV, phones, computers, social media, all those things, those things are actually kind of are representative of abundance. I mean, you think, you look at a phone, in 1969, the Apollo astronauts landed on the moon, if you believe they did, but just, just joking, just joking. I believe they did, but anyhow. But the computers that navigated the Apollo, uh, the Apollo landing uh, craft, what do they call it? The lunar module, that's it. Were not as powerful as this phone right here. You think about that, but that's a symbol of abundance. You think about power, you think about um, technology. We have it just everywhere. It's everywhere. It's all around us. It's in my pocket. Just this little key fob. It's in my pocket. That represents abundance, convenience. And those things tend to, they numb us. You know, the, the Laodicea, the church at Laodicea is a, is a very, very, I mean, it's very easy to see ourselves in the church of Laodicea. It's not hard at all. And so we have to be very careful of apathy as, as Christians, as men, as women, as children of God. We, we ought to be able to be stirred up by some things. Uh, you know, some things ought not bother us that do bother us. And then other things that ought, you know, ought, ought to bother us don't. And uh, so we need to pay attention to that, not be apathetic, have the zeal of God in our life. All right. Let's look down at verse number 140. Verse 140. It says, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Now you think of what, what it, something that's pure. We'll look at a couple, other, uh, a couple other references while we're in the Psalms to kind of get this, this idea of what it means to be pure. Look at verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12, Psalm 12. I know Psalm 12, 6 and 7 is often used to describe, you know, the preservation of Scripture and things like that. But I just want to look at verse 6. Because the words of the Lord are pure words. Uh, it says that the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. What, is that, what does that mean? In other words, God uses, God states the word of the Lord is pure and then to illustrate that, he uses a furnace. Has anybody ever seen how they use a furnace, like on TV or something? 
So what do they do? They take it and they put it, they put the, the metal in a crucible, like the, the raw metal, maybe shavings or uh, cut up pieces of metal or whatever they might have from old jewelry or whatever it might be. They put it into the furnace to melt the metal and the metal melts and once it becomes liquefied, then the, the components of the metal, whatever impurities are in the metal, separate. And the slag, they call it, that rises to the top, they're able to take something and just scoop it out. They're able to scoop it out, and then they can put it back into the, back into the furnace, make sure it's melted, pull it out. And they, do, they can do that sev- several times because each time you do it, it gets more and more pure. And what does that mean? You know, you think of a pure metal is when it's, you know, 99%. And that's what we're talking about here is it's purified seven times, the idea of completion, perfect purity. It's, been, it's, it's gone through the crucible. It's gone into the furnace. All the impurities have been removed. Now, we're not saying that's what, we're not saying the Bible had impurities and then it was slowly removed. Listen, don't take these illustrations too far. But the point is, is that it has been, God made it pure. There's no admixture of error. There's no mixture of good and bad. There's no mixture of truth and error. There's no mixture of righteousness and unrighteousness. So when you look at God's Word, what you're getting is the pure thing. There's nothing sprinkled throughout that might be or call, give, give us cause to think that there's something in there that's not purely the Word of God. So you have the idea of it being purely the Word of God. In other words, God is the author of it, and no human has added to it, taken away from it. It is as God originally intended it. And then you also have the idea of something being pure, in other words, as it is righteous. In other words, it's all, every bit of it is good, and every bit of it is true, and every bit of it is right. And so there's no mixture to it. It says, thy word is very pure, very pure. Now, look at verse 142 again. It says, thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Now, that's related to verse 140, because they both describe the degree to which God's Word is pure. Again, thy law is the truth. That's a statement. That's an absolute statement, right? Thy law is the truth. It's not partially true. It's not, it's not the truth mixed with something else. It is the truth. Now, 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 understand, for God to say that of His Word, that's a high standard. That's a very high standard. That's a very high standard. Because that means that everything that the Bible touches upon must be real, must be reality, must be, uh, must be fact. Now think about that. That's a very high standard. You know, so, you know, I was, as a result of, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about it as my, according as my wife will give me liberty about her brother and what's happened to him, but... As I was studying that, the condition that he has, what I realized is I started to see that anytime they talk about this, they always say, well, it is believed that this might be caused by, or this, this chemical might have an influence upon. And it's like, you know, that just doesn't lend confidence. Because they, they're setting the bar <laughs> intentionally low so that if they come back later and realize that, it didn't really stop the spread, then they can always come back and say, oh, well, we told you it might not. But see, God didn't do that. 
He sets the standard up here. And he says, this is unmixed with error. It is true. The truth. Many different ways the Bible describes it. Thy righteousness, it, the, verse 144, the righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. So, in summary, what this means between verse 140 and 142 is this. God's Word is pure, not partially true, partially false, partially right, partially wrong. It is wholly true and perfectly right. Here's what that means in practice. That means when you look at the Bible, there's no part of the Bible that you can go to that's incorrect, right? That's what it means. It means whatever the Bible speaks on is correct, is accurate, is righteous, or whatever the, the characterization might, you might want to use in that particular case. This is very important to us as a, as a Christian, as a believer. Did you know there are many Christians who question? I'm talking about people who have believed the gospel, who are born again. But after they, after they have believed the gospel, they had no questions about the gospel, you know, so they got saved. They trusted in Christ. But through a series of maybe Bible teachers or whatever, they have questions about whether all of the text of Scripture is reliable whether all of it is true. See, as long as it seeps into our mind and heart that God's Word is possibly a little wrong, we always have a cause or a pretext to dismiss those parts that might seem a little, uh, that might cause us discomfort or might cause us a little bit of shame. You know, you think about the current climate we're in, you say what the Bible says, absolutely. You say, you, you say that, you know, those that, those that commit the sin of sodomy, scripturally speaking, are worthy of death. You know, that used to not be a question, but, but that's a scriptural fact, is it not? But now, as I said that, just as a test, I don't want anybody to raise your hand or anything, but as I said that, how many of you, kind of took exception to that and kind of paused like, man, that's harsh. What about this? Adultery is the same way. Did not in the law God say that if a man or a woman committed adultery, they should be stoned? Did it say that? Yes. Well, that's, that's harsh. You see, this is, you see what I'm talking about? At this point, this is where it matters. This is where it matters. It's at these hard places where, where uh, what, we, what the Bible says and what is popularly believed kind of collide. And we have to come, we ha if we're going to believe the Bible, we have, to fall, we have to come down on the side that says, just like verse 140, thy word is very pure. 142, thy law is the truth. You might not like it. At times I might not like it but it's the truth. No mixture of error. Here's the problem. It is a demonic device. The devil, the devil used it in Matthew 4, the temptation, to try to wedge open just a little gap to make us think that part of God's Word is not wholly reliable. Because 
Now, we, we, it, we might quibble over some genealogy or s something like that over whether, you know, who's including the genealogy. But the idea is to wedge a gap, to open a little bit of space. And in that space, it is a work of Satan to cram every doubt, every skepticism, everything possible into that little space that was opened by something that wasn't even related. And before you know it, and I've observed this with my own eyes, before you know it, we're questioning whether we should take seriously certain parts of the Bible as soon as someone raises a question about them. Well, you know, Paul, in his day, you know, all that with Romans chapter 1 and, you know, about homosexuality, you know, that, I mean, that was in Paul's day, but I mean, Paul didn't know all that we know. This is exactly what people say. And it directly affects the way we view this world. So this is a, it's, it's, an important, it's an important question. This is how our mind works. When, however, when we accept the Word of God, the whole of God's Word as truth and pure without mixture of error, then we have no excuse but to submit to it and to acknowledge it's true. Even if I don't understand even if you agree, I agree. They don't agree. Whoever doesn't agree. Look at Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Look at a few verses here that touch on these things. Matthew 5, verse 17. The Lord speaking here. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. You see, notice he uses the smallest Hebrew markings to describe that, jot and tittle, all right? That means that there is no mixture of error, not even in the smallest amount. That's what's being conveyed there. In other words, it is all true and therefore will all be fulfilled. No part of it is left to, uh, is, is assumed. Now, what I'm trying to describe is this is what Jesus, his own testimony of the law, as he had it in his day, which, of course, he had the Old Testament law, the Old Testament scriptures. Look at Proverbs chapter 30. If you would, verse 5. And then we'll look at Revelation 22 in just a minute. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says this, Every word of God is pure. You notice that? Of all the words, of all the words, there's no mixture of one that's impure. Now, I'm speaking in generalities. Listen, in, in people go around and around and around about this word and that word, and if you get into circles where they discuss that, it's, I mean, it's just, it's endless. It's endless. But this is what God, the point is, this is what God says of His Word. All right? Uh, and then it says in verse number 5, uh, He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. Add thou not unto His words, lest He reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Now, why does God say, do not add to his words? Because when a human being, that is not God, adds to God's word, they are introducing something that is not pure 
That's the key. That's, and that's what, we've, that's what we've seen throughout history. People taking out, taking a, a knife to God's Word and removing those parts that they don't like, that disagree with their doctrine or whatever. We'll see that, a little bit of that in, this morning. Look at Revelation 22. Verse number 18. Familiar, I'm sure you know these verses, but notice how it relates to the purity of God's Word. It says this, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away, out, take away his part, out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from those things which are written in this book. You know, Mormons, they, they have the uh, Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrines and Covenants. How many of you have heard of the, what do they call them, the five? Did you know that term? The five, they have five, maybe it's four, anyway, whatever it is, uh, books that they consider to be God's Word, all right? And they look at this verse and they say, oh, well, this is just talking about the book of Revelation. The thing is, it matches Proverbs. But here's the point. You add to, you take it away, you have made it impure. You have put something that has the label of God's Word that is now corrupted. And that's why sometimes you got to be careful. Like sometimes people talk about the Word of God is infallible. But the Bible actually says you can corrupt the Word of God. You know how? By introducing, <laughs> by introducing things that aren't God's Word. It no longer is pure. Now, we know God's Word is settled in heaven. In other words, that doesn't change it in God's sight. All right, let's go, to, go down to verse number, uh, go to Psalm 119 again, verse 142. I lost my place, so give me just a second. It says this, Thy righteousness is everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. The truth. Here's what truth is, defined. Truth. Something that conforms with fact or reality. It's very simple. Something that conforms with fact or reality. Now, in our time, in the worldview that is predominant in our day, one of the cruxes of this, I mentioned this several weeks ago, one of the cruxes of that and one of the pillars of this worldview is called moral relativism. And I'll just read this to you just as a reminder because this is related to it. Moral relativism is a philosophy, a philosophical position that asserts that moral principles and ethical judgments are not universally fixed or objective, but instead are subject to variability based on individual, cultural, or societal perspectives. According to moral relativism, there are no absolute or universally applicable moral standards that can be applied to all people or, or cultures. Instead, Moral judgments are considered to be contingent upon cultural norms, personal beliefs, historical contexts, and situ or situational factors. That's one you hear all the... Well, you have to understand the context, the broader context. You know, that's a, a thing these days. The bottom line is, the moral relativist, despite all of his uh, lip service given to, oh, well, your truth and what you think, that's good for you, they deny us, they deny anyone the right to believe in anything absolute. 
So when you say, no, this is the truth, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the Bible or something outside of the Bible, that, is, that as we read, something that conforms with fact or reality, that's not, that's not permitted. Anything that is absolute, that is universally true in all cases to all people at all times, that's what the Word of God is. Universally true at all times to all people. Right? And that's what, that's what that, the people that hold to this moral relativism despise more than anything else. It's intolerant. It's bigoted, they call it. Now, just because the Bible says, though, thy law is the truth. Now, what, what is that saying? What it's not saying is truth. Uh, what is in the scripture is the boundary to truth and nothing outside of the scripture is true. No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, of course, we know there are things outside of the scripture that are also true, you know, like various facts of nature and, you know, things like that. But what it's saying is that everything upon which the Bible touches or speaks is true. Where it speaks is true. Now, we know that God did not tell us everything, all the knowledge there is to know in the Bible. But here's the thing. The Bible is God's revelation. And there are many, many, many subjects upon which the Scriptures speak that the truth of them is to be found only in the Bible and nowhere else. Now think of what I just said. There are many, many subjects that are spoken of in the Bible where the truth of those things can only be known in the Bible. And there's no other absolute source of truth for those things, period. You can't find them in nature. You certainly won't find it in some laboratory. You will not find it among philosophers because they can only be known by direct revelation of God. You think about the nature of God himself, the nature of man, the things God tells us about the next life, about creation. A lot of these things you can't, you can't know. You know, think on the subject, I got to close, but you think on the subject of creation. You know, the, the scientists take their telescopes. You, you've probably seen this James Webb telescope that can, you know, is way better than the Hubble and the pictures that it sends back are, are fantastic. You know, you, I love to see stuff like that. You know, you, if, you don't, if you've ever, never had the chance, you ought to look up on, on the internet. They have a, a, a website, I think it's with the Hubble, actually, not with the James Webb, but where they give, you, they give you this really large picture of what just appears to be the night sky, but then they, the, you're able to zoom in on a very, very small speck of black in the night sky that the Hubble Space Telescope spent like, whatever, two weeks looking at in one exposure. And when you zoom in on that speck of what appears to the naked eye to be black, you see literally millions of galaxies. Millions of galaxies that are visible. In other words, light is emitted from them. But, they, but the point is, I mean, that's fantastic. Because to us, we see that and we think, man, what, I mean, how great thou art. You know, that's what we think, right? But to them, what they see is, they see time. Well, if it took that long for the, all the light that far away to get here, then that means the universe must be, you know, they keep on increasing the age of the universe from four to five to six. Now we're about six and a half billion years old or whatever they say. It keeps on getting longer and longer because the telescopes keep getting better and better. 
And they realize right when they think they're going to get to the edge and there's not going to be anything else to see, there's more to see because the telescope got better. And so therefore the universe got older as they did. So as it appears to us is one thing, but as it is a, in reality is a different thing. I'll give you an, in other words, when God created the universe, I'm just using it as an example. When God created the universe, he created it as a fully formed entity. It was fully functional from the moment he created it. It wasn't a process or anything. No, God, God created it, and it was fully, fully uh, functional, I guess you could say. Just like when he created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't start out as babies. They were fully grown. So if you looked at, if you looked at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you would think you were seeing a, a, an adult, and you would assume from our perspective that Adam had grown up because that's the way we understand unless you try to look at his belly button. But we won't go there because nobody wants to look at somebody else's belly button. But the point is, is that it, <laughs> the point is, is that it, you, the way it is perceived is different than the truth. And that, the fact that God created, created everything by direct, an act of, a direct act of creation is something that can only be known by God himself telling us. Because to us, it appears old, just like Adam and Eve did. But that wasn't the case, you see. That's, that's where these two worldviews collide. As I said, there are many, many matters upon which the Scriptures speak that the truth of them is only to be found in the Scripture, and you cannot know them any other way. All right, we'll have to stop there and uh, pick up on the 19th set, starting in verse 145 next week. All right, let's pray.